0: Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians. Okay. Give me 1 second. Okay. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and god will destroy both one and the other the body is meant not for fornication but for the lord and the lord for the body and god raised the lord and will raise us by his power do you not know that your bodies are members of christ Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body itself. But the, fornication sin, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Y'all, great to be with all of you here at Urban Village Andersonville. Uh, Thanks, Luis, again for your testimony. Uh, To testify in a large way is to tell the truth about what God is doing in us, to tell the truth about what God is doing in this community, and what God is calling us to. Thanks. ...and what God is calling us to. So thanks for telling the truth and calling us to do the gospel work of anti-racism and justice. So I know some of you, I know many of you perhaps, but there's a lot of you I don't know. So uh, some of you are probably wondering, who is this guy and why is he preaching at my church? So uh, my name is Rich, Rich Havard, and I am the campus pastor at uh, New and Inclusive Ministry at UIC. That's at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And before launching this new ministry this fall, I was the church starting resident at Urban Village Wicker Park. Sort of like the associate pastor at Urban Village Wicker Park. So several weeks ago, Brittany uh, came to me and she said, Hey Rich, will you preach on September 27th? I'm going to be out of town. And I said sure, and got on on my calendar, I said sure, without asking about what the sermon series would be. (laughs) So Brittany, she's smart, right? She quickly accepted my yes And then she said, oh, by the way, you're going to be talking and preaching about sex and desire. And I was like, oh, great. So for those of you who are a bit uncomfortable talking about sex in church, I was at Wicker Park Urban Village last week, another site, and uh, I noticed some people get a little squirmy uh, during Christian Kuhn's sermon. For those of you that are a bit uncomfortable, I invite you to try preaching about sex to (laughs) to a room full of people, many of whom you've never met. So uh, I also, when I told Brittany yes, I said, yes, and I want to share a little bit about what God is doing at UIC uh, and what, what's been happening so far with the ministry there. She said, of course. And she said, by the way, uh, what goes better together than sex and college students? So here we are. Uh, before we launch into the second week, the second sermon of the Some Like It Hot sermon series, I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on and what God is up to at UIC. We're launching this new ministry this fall. And I could talk to you right now about sort of vision and granular details and programming and and that sort of thing. And I'm happy to do that. But first, I want to, or maybe today during this limited time, I want to share with you the testimony of a student who's been involved uh, in our time there. And this is a testimony from Zach. Zach writes... Joining a new and inclusive ministry at UIC has been a turning point in my faith journey. I'm filled with a deep sense of gratitude to be accepted here as a gay Christian for the first time in my life. I came from a relatively conservative Christian community in rural Illinois. Growing up, I was always told that gay people are sinners who are outside the realm of God's grace. When I decided to come out to my church community last year, I was denied full inclusion unless I somehow changed. Maintaining my faith in a place where I felt so excluded was extremely difficult to do. Upon moving to Chicago, I was extremely excited to discover a new and inclusive ministry because I knew I would find a place where I belong. It's refreshing to be part of a group that unequivocally accepts me as I am. For me, God's love used to come with so many conditions, but now I'm beginning to experience God's intense love as I believe it really is. Friends, this is why we're launching a new and inclusive ministry at UIC, because of Zach and because of so many students like him and so many students who are way different from him. Because the honest truth is that if we don't do this, if we don't try to create this this vibrant and inclusive and and deeply rooted in the gospel ministry at UIC, then it doesn't exist there. And I think for a campus, any campus, but for a campus in Chicago so close to us that has over 28,000 students, it's imperative for us to do what we can to create that community there. So in a large way, what we're doing is taking much of the DNA that makes Urban Village who we are, we're taking that and um, contextualizing it, yes, and, and, but bringing it onto the place where students are already living and working and studying and playing and going to the students where they are. And so um, it's no overstatement to say that this new ministry would not be launching right now, would not be started if it weren't for Urban Village if it weren't for y'all. So I'm deeply thankful to Urban Village for nurturing me as a resident, for creating this residency program, for launching me to start this new ministry, and for helping me in ways that many of you probably don't even know. Urban Village's mission is to create Jesus-loving, inclusive communities that ignite the city. And this new ministry is such a benefit. We benefit from the mission that y'all not only talk about or say at the beginning of the service, but for the mission that y'all live out. The things y'all are doing here matter deeply. Not just to people here in Andersonville, but it's having a ripple effect. And not only at UIC, but really across the country and across the world. We're helping start a church in Germany, for instance. So, thank you. Um, If you want to play a role in uh, helping create that faith community where students can experience God's intense love, as Zach is in the midst of doing, um, perhaps experience that for the first time in a while or for the first time ever. There are many ways to partner. Uh, Prayer, I need people to commit to prayer. Um, Financially, volunteering. Our website and social media handles are here. So you can get out your phone now if you want and go follow us or give us a like. I'll take a picture of this and follow later. Also, Lynette is here every week, so Lynette wave. Lynette is interning, and so uh, if you have questions about it anytime, uh, feel free to talk to her. Uh, but thank you. Now, let us talk about sex. I know we're all coming from different backgrounds, from different places and social locations, uh, sexual orientations and gender identities, and I totally realize that I'm coming from one. Uh, limited perspective today. So I'm open if after the sermon or later this week you have my email. If you want to email me or send me a message and, and ask me a question or feel free to disagree and I would love to have that conversation. And I also want to say that Urban Village is a community of faith that is all about grace and not about shame. And so whether you were here this morning having woken up by yourself or woken up next to someone whose name you don't know, or woken up with your partner for 30 years, you're all welcome and loved in this place. As we begin, let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this morning, for the people gathered here, for who they are, for who you've created them to be, who you've created us to be. And so, God, in these moments, may all of the meditations and thoughts and daydreams and ideas and wonderings in our mind and in our heart. And may the words of my mouth be pleasing unto you, be aligned with who you are, be flowing with your grace. O God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. This week as I was preparing for the sermon, I read a lot of books, and skimmed a lot of books, I didn't read a lot of books, I skimmed a lot of books, read a lot of blog posts, watched a lot of videos about sex and the church and all these things, and you can imagine the vast array of things that I found, right? Just do some of those Google searches. And uh, one of the ones I want to show you this morning is from um, this, this satire, this spoof of a youth camp experience uh, where this uh, sort of evangelist named Ignatius, self-entitled, Ignatius uh, goes to uh, this youth camp and preaches a sermon. And the whole sermon is full of uh, really graphic details about, that's Ignatius, uh, really graphic details about uh, his and his smoking hot wife's sex life. Uh, And this is how he concludes uh, the sermon. The video is clearly satire, right? It's, uh, I hope this isn't happening anywhere. But satire, we know, uh, uh, just if you want to go watch the rest of the video, I highly suggest it. It's like 10 minutes long, but go watch it. Ignatius, Youth Worker, something like that. Uh, It's it's satire, but satire we know is a form of social criticism. And satire often points to uh, things that are real, just in funny ways. And I think this video points to the reality that church is often not a safe or life-giving place to talk about sex. And for many of us, it's been a place that has taught suppression and shame and guilt and strict rules without any explanation or need for discernment and so much else. For many people, uh, perhaps many in this room, the church has made us think that sex and desire are dirty and shameful except in one case of one man and one woman having sex for the sole purpose of procreation. When I think about sex and church, I'm flooded with memories of every young man's battle book studies. Does anyone else know that book? I got one last time. Okay. A couple, I see a couple years here. Every young man's battle book studies, small groups on the evils of masturbation, and probing questions like, how far is too far? Some of you all have these memories too, right? I'm not alone. I don't think at least. So with the church's sexual past, and frankly, with the church's sexual present in mind, one of the things that we want to accomplish and to do in this sermon series is to proclaim loudly and to proclaim clearly that sex and desire are not shameful. In fact, sex and desire are good gifts from our gracious Creator God. Desire is part of our God-given DNA. We are hardwired for it, and it is not something to be suppressed or discarded. If anyone is here a fan of the Radiolab podcast, they did an episode several years ago, and it was called, This is Your Brain on Love. And they discussed the science behind desire, the brain chemicals that ignite and fuel and sustain and focus our desires, the three chemicals given to us by God. First up is dopamine. This is the chemical that makes us feel great. It's that surge of passion and euphoria and that quintessential love chemical, the chemical that sets us up for the love party. It's the one that gets us in the mood. Norepinephrine. The chemical that communicates good feelings between neurons in our brains. It leads us to focus thought and intention. So if dopamine sets us up for the party, norepinephrine is what makes you take the risk and ask that person you've been eyeing all night to make your dreams come true. It makes our heart pound and our skin sweat. Dopamine and norepinephrine, they come on strong, but they fade quickly. So we need this third chemical, uh, oxytocin, to help our desire last a bit longer. And Oxytocin fires up and it lasts a long time. And it, it may not have the same high as the other two, but it's what sustains us and fuels our desire for deep companionship over the long haul. So God created us with these three chemicals and many more, and God formed our bodies, and these chemicals swirl around inside of us, creating desire. And God wants us to experience the depths of desire and to long for intimacy with another human being, to risk vulnerability emotionally and spiritually and sexually with another person. God wants us to experience the fulfillment of full vulnerability and connection with another human The experience of being fully known and loved. And and sexuality in the Bible is more than about what parts fit together for procreation, but it's way more about the deep longing and desire for the other. And this deep desire and connection, it points to a greater reality of connection with God and being modeled after a triune God. The Trinity, right? It's the Christian concept that God is three in one together in an intimate union of love and equality, and we have a God who wants to experience, wants us to experience that same intimacy. But our God-given desires, the DNA that God gave us, those, that stuff isn't nurtured just in a vacuum. Because we have this whole host of external factors that form and misshape and complicate and develop our desires. And I'm not really interested in this whole, like, the church gets this all right, and culture gets this all wrong, because that's not true, right? The church gets some things right, the culture gets some things right, and they both, a lot of the times, I think, get stuff about sex wrong. The church offers dose after dose of shame and guilt, and tells us that sex is very bad, except in very limited and rigid circumstances. And our broader culture takes the approach that have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, and if anyone tells you differently, then they're living back in a leave-it-to-beaver society. One of my classmates from seminary named Lakeisha called this a Burger King ethic. Have it your way. Whatever you desire, you deserve it and can have it, and it's all good for you. And that ethic has some obvious implications, and and it can even have some really damaging and abusive implications, right? Right? Next week, we'll talk about how it can lead to sexual violence. So here we have the church. Sex and desire are antithetical to the life of a disciple. The church has this obsession with purity rings and pledges to fight marriage equality and commitments to rigid gender norms and patriarchy and conversion therapy. And those things misshape our God-given desires. When the church operates in that way, it misshapes the desire that God gave us. And I can tell you that being nurtured in a church that practices a lot of those things didn't lead me to lean into and embrace the gift of desire that God gave me. And I don't think I'm alone there. I think for a lot of us that church didn't lead us into abundant life when it comes to sexuality and desire. In fact, it tried to suppress or prevent or discard it. So then we turn to our culture, our broader culture. And there we find a $13 billion per year porn industry with 88% of videos containing physical aggression. Scientists have found that folks who are addicted to porn, the brain patterns are identical to those addicted to cocaine. We find the Ashley Madison website, whose recent hack caused over 400 pastors to resign, ruined countless marriages, and led to several suicides. And then we see our culture's misshaping of what is to be desired. And Glamour Magazine reports that 97% of women have at least one I-hate-my-body moment per day. The culture's not leading us to abundant life here either. As an aside, I do think that the church and the culture do get things right sometimes. The church is starting to realize in a lot of circles that the way that we've talked about sex and and told people about it and the damage we've done is not okay, it's not gospel driven and so then we need to start doing some correction. We need to look at ourselves and figure out what we have done wrong and create a new way forward and I hope that's what Urban Village is trying to do. I think it is. But then uh, also there's questions about this Burger King ethic, have it your way, that are starting to pop up in our culture starting to ask questions if this is really the way it's meant to be. And we see this in articles like GQ's Ten Reasons to Quit Watching Porn, a recent article in the movie Don John, if you've seen that. And let's not forget that more people in our broader culture fought for marriage equality than people in the church. Thanks be to God for those folks. So yeah, the church and the culture waking up to ways we've been misshaping desire But I think that the broader witness, the overall witness of both, still misshape and complicate desire in ways that are often unhelpful, damaging, and even abusive. So we have our biblical text today. Uh, We find uh, Paul, who's the great first century church planter, church starter, and missionary. And he's writing to a group of people who are struggling with, what is desire, and why do we have it, and what do we do with it? And our passage is part of a larger letter of 1 Corinthians. And so Paul wrote this letter to that church, and in a way, uh, we're, we're just privy to read it. It's like we're reading someone else's mail, really, uh, except it's 2,000 years old. I, myself love eavesdropping, and so I have absolutely zero problem with reading someone else's mail. So I kind of like this. And um, Paul wrote this letter to a church plant, a church start. And it was about 150 to 200 people. seems similar to some place that I know. And um, it's in a city 40 miles south of Athens. Corinth functioned as this commercial crossroads. It was busy. It was a hub for a lot of activity. And it was also known for its sexual promiscuity and known for its sort of superficial cultural life. In the church, it included both Jews and Gentiles and it was also socioeconomically diverse, which was a rarity those days, and it's a rarity today as well. Paul had planted this church, had started this church, about four years earlier. He pastored it for about 18 months and then he left. And so he's writing this letter back to a church that he had founded and then left. And he's writing this letter because he's received some news from people, from leaders in the church in Corinth. So this woman named Chloe, a leader in the early church, it's always important to lift up the women in the Bible because they don't get enough voice. This woman named Chloe leader in the early church, and she writes to Paul telling him about some of the things going on. Another group in Corinth writes to Paul about what's going on, and they're talking about sketchy sexual ethics and about um, some theological concerns and legal disputes. And if we read Paul, he's not really taking these things lightly. In fact, he views the church at a sort of crossroads, and he tries to offer them some pastoral guidance and instruction. And Paul, what he's calling them to is really a conversion of imagination. So Paul saw that their church and their culture weren't exactly guiding people in the most life-giving ways, the most gospel-driven ways. And so he invites them to think and live and act and dream in another way, a way shaped by the gospel of Jesus. Today, we're camping out in the latter half of chapter 6. But before we get there and launch into that conversation, I think it's imperative to name that the beginning of 1 Corinthians 6 The first part of that chapter can be a triggering passage for LGBTQ folks. So I just want to say, in case you're new or in case you're wondering, this church, nor I, we don't believe in using the Bible to abuse people, one. Two, we don't believe that this passage, or any passage in Scripture, prohibits uh, loving, same-gender relationships. If you have questions about that, come talk to me, email. My email's in the flyer. But I just wanted to make that clear before we dive into the second part, because I know 1 Corinthians 6, some of y'all were like, Why are we talking about this passage? Kelly read it earlier today, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And a lot of scholars think that Paul's literary form, the tools that he used to write this passage, was sort of like an imaginary dialogue. And so he was taking like the Corinthians say this, and then Paul responds with this. And that's not for certain because quotations don't exist in ancient Greek. So anytime you see quotes in ancient Greek, it's sort of like a guess, just FYI. Uh, But uh, I think it's helpful for us to wrap our minds a little bit around what Paul is saying to take this imaginary dialogue model. So it's up on the screen, and we'll go through different parts of the conversation. First piece, uh, Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, Paul, but not all things are beneficial. The motto, the maxim of the Corinthian church was, I can do whatever I want, I am free to do anything. And that was their primary argument and justification for all that they did. They had taken a little bit of a, like, Greek philosophy and merged it with a, a misinterpretation of Christian freedom and produced this you-can-have-and-do-whatever-you-like ethic. So in their larger cultural world, men had license to do whatever they wanted sexually, essentially. And so they, had, uh, they raped young boys, um, they had prostitutes and abused women in that way, And these members of the Corinthian church, especially men, are insisting on, we can do what we've always done. We can do what we desire because I can do whatever I want. But Paul takes this opportunity to say, "Uh, actually a different way exists. But notice that Paul doesn't deny their freedom. Paul doesn't say, actually you're not free. Paul, if we read the rest of his letters and other writings, Paul is always proclaiming freedom in Christ. We have freedom in Christ. But Paul adds a depth and texture to that freedom that they weren't understanding. And Paul asserts that someone who is free, someone who is fueled by grace, is someone who doesn't use self-indulgence as the only discernment tool. Rather, someone who is free and fueled by grace is someone who operates with an enlightened understanding of what is good for them, what is fruitful, what is about abundance for them, and the other in the world. So sure, we may be able to do all things, but the question is, do all things lead to abundant life? Corinthians, next part of the conversation. All things are lawful for me, again. Paul, but I will not be dominated by anything. So here Paul is getting at this difference between desire and addiction. So is our desire for things, is that leading us to healthy places in life, Or are we addicted to things in ways that control us? In ways where we give up any control. Corinthians, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Paul, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God will raise the Lord and will also raise us by His power. So, the Corinthians here are saying, if we want food, we eat. If we want sex, we go for it. And none of it matters because this is just about the physical body, and the physical body really doesn't have any importance. It's just sort of trivial and transient. And the Corinthians here rely on uh, Platonic philosophy, and they separate the soul from the body. They're two different things, and the body really doesn't matter. But for Paul, the body is not simply some husk to be tossed aside but it will be redeemed. We will be redeemed in totality, body, mind, and spirit. Paul, throughout his writings, has a holistic view about humanity. And beyond Paul, God came to earth as Jesus in human flesh, as a body. The incarnation is the ultimate proof that God cares about bodies, that bodies matter to God And it's wild to me that the Christian church, that we can ever do that separation, or the Christian church can ever lose sight of the fact that bodies matter because our faith is rooted in the incarnation and the resurrection of a body. And this has implications not only for sex, sexuality, and desire. This has implications for our care of creation, the physical world around us. It has implications for our involvement in Black Lives Matter movement and the importance of that, the vitalness of that to the gospel. It has implications for all sorts of justice issues that Luis was talking about earlier because we don't believe that in the end God's just going to blow things up and we're going to float off to some otherworldly place. But we believe that God is working to redeem all of creation. God created it as good and is working to redeem it even now, even through us. Bodies matter to God. So Paul ends the dialogue here. And Paul goes on for a little monologue, which he often likes to do. And he informs the Corinthians that their bodies belong to Christ because they have been joined with him in a union of depth. Therefore, this sort of do whatever they want is not the path forward. Instead, Paul says, flee fornication. Fornication, a word that is a part of our everyday vocabularies, isn't it? No, it is not. At least not for me. Some of you may be. It's a word often used in church. We find it in scripture and we're like, what what does that even really mean? Uh, The Greek word is uh, pornea. And it is the broadest term for sexual sin in Greek. It's sort of like an umbrella term. So all sorts of things fall underneath this, especially um, things like uh, prostitution, which was mentioned earlier, or rape with young boys. And so this type of sexuality, Paul is saying, is harmful for you and for others because sex isn't meant for some momentary selfish pleasure only for one person, but sex is meant to allow us to experience a deep union and connection and vulnerability, full vulnerability, with another human. Paul tells the Corinthians, you all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies are the place where the Holy Spirit and where humanity collide and intersect and are joined together. Our bodies are that place. It's no longer an external temple where that happens, but it's in us where it happens. And Paul doesn't say, in order to get that, you've got to go be more holy. In order to get my long pour of the Holy Spirit, you've got to go do some things and prepare yourself in order to get it. But Paul instead says, no, you are already a temple of the Holy Spirit. You already have uh, the Spirit running through your veins and in your bones and in your DNA. So begin to live out of that overwhelming and beautiful reality. God's given you the Spirit. God's given us, each of us, the Spirit. And friends, we belong to God, Paul says. And as Aaron James Brown, our director of discipleship, reminded us, In the e news this past week, God doesn't claim us in the same way that Nick Jonas claims women as his property, right? God claims us as children who are loved beyond measure, as children who belong to God no matter what. And we are to let that fuel our lives, that fact fuel our lives. And so our lives can be more meaningful then do what you like. And our lives can be more meaningful than shame, too. Because there's more to our lives and our sexuality and our desire than a who-cares mentality that's handed to us by the culture, and there's more to our lives and sexuality and desire than a rigid, shame-based, rigid rule often handed out to us by the church. But if neither of those options are helpful, then what is helpful? If you're looking for a catchy ethical formula or statement this morning that you can just take in one sentence and apply to everything, or if you're looking for a theological permission to just, for this kind of go-anything approach, you're not going to get it from me. Maybe Brittany will give it to you. Come back next week. Uh, But so many sermons are preached, I think, in, um, they're interested in questions that lack a lot of depth. And so we have sermons that, that preach on questions that are only behavioral and questions that are like the the how far is too far question is asked in a lot of circles are exactly when can I have sex and just want sort of one answer fits all but I I don't mean to say that those questions lack um, importance and for some of you you may be wrestling with those things I don't want to say they lack importance but I do think that whenever we're talking about these things if we narrow the conversation only to questions about when certain sexual acts are appropriate that we're actually missing out on the depth and humanity and deep spirituality and mystery and complexity of sexuality and desire. So in the sermon series, if you were here last week, you saw several questions that Brittany posed, uh, and they're guiding this sermon series across all the urban village sites, and they're going to be on the screen. We're going to walk through them again, and I'm going to hopefully add uh, and ask a few other questions that hopefully add some flesh to these. It always helps me a little bit more for questions to be phrased in different ways or to to add some texture to it. Uh, God created us with sexual desires, and that's beautiful. The church may try to deny or suppress our desire. The culture may misshape and want our desire to control every part of us. So in the midst of all this, which can be very confusing and very complex, How do we navigate how to live sexually and with desire as disciples of Jesus? I think these questions are helpful. One, what do I desire? And begin by asking that basic question. And introspection can be hard, but I want us to be honest with ourselves when we ask this question. So notice that the question doesn't read, what should I desire? But it reads, what do I desire? And so asking that question and digging deeply and being honest and figuring that out before we can get anywhere else. What do we desire? Two, why do I desire that? Asking questions about what is shaping my desire? Has the church shaped it in a way that is causing deep suppression and shame and guilt? Has the culture shaped it in a way where I just think, oh, my body, whatever, it's, it's, it's pretty much useless and trivial and doesn't matter. Because neither of those things are the truth. Is our desire beneficial? Is it leading to abundance? Is it life-giving? Does our desire dominate us? Are we addicted to porn or sex in a way that is controlling every part of who we are? Do the things that we desire, do they only serve me? Are they selfish desires that are only worried about me? What do we want our sexuality to communicate? What do we want it to say about who we are and who God is? What is our desire moving us toward? Three, what is my partner desire? Sex is not an isolated thing, y'all. Sex and desire are not just isolated. They're with other people, and so if they don't happen in isolation we need to be able to have open and honest and frank and mature and even spiritual conversations with our partners about what they desire. And I think if we can't have a verbal conversation, if we can't talk about these things openly and in mature ways, then we need to take a step back. Four, what does God desire? And then asking not only what, but why does God desire that? If God desires something for us, it is for our good and for our abundance. And so asking the question, why God? Why this way? And God, I assure you, I promise you can handle our why questions. And and this question may not lead to a sort of single sentence ethic. In fact, I hope it leads to something way deeper than that. And fifth, how do these desires intersect, align or not? Does our desire glorify God? How is our desire and our sexuality part of our lives as a disciple of Jesus? Because when we become become disciples of Jesus, we're not only following with our head or with our heart, we're following with our whole selves, our bodies included. So how does it align with that? As we seek, this is the second week of a sermon series, of a five-week sermon series, but this is a lifelong project, right? It happens for all of us, all across our lives, these issues, these questions. And so, as we seek to begin answering them, I have no uh, naivete about the fact that we're going to get all this stuff done in five weeks, right? Uh, as we begin, as, as we spark um, these questions, my hope is that we do some deep introspection, we do some reflection on our own, but that we don't leave it there. And so, we also believe in the fact uh, in community enough to go to other people, trusted friends, prayer partners, accountability folks, our small groups, and we talk about these things in real ways in those spaces as well. And lastly, but most importantly, I hope that we know, I pray that we know, that throughout this entire journey, throughout all the questions we have and all the complexities and all the beautiful things and the joys and all the mess-ups and all of it, I hope we know that God has got us. That God is guiding us all along the way and that God in every step of the journey is pouring out grace upon grace upon grace. May we believe that and may that form the foundation of all that we do. Amen.